Job 1, verse 1, and 2, verses 1 through 10. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin, all the people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Our second scripture lesson today is the psalm for today. Psalm number 8. Hear the words of the psalmist. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God's and crowned them with honor and glory. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. In your majesty, O Lord, who are we? And yet in pausing with the celebration of your glory, we often reflect back on our own human condition wondering why things are the way they are. May your word settle our troubled hearts, and may your presence in all things distract us from that which would call anything you have made other than blessed. To Christ's glory. Amen. Before we actually visit Job this morning, I'm going to ask you to work with me thinking a little historically and theologically about sin suffering, and grace. You willing to do that with me this morning? 
I'm going to ask you to think hard about sin and about suffering and about grace. If you don't want to do that, I don't have an optional sermon, so you're just going to have to ride along anyway. Just uh, do us the favor of turning the sound off whatever game you're deciding to play on your cell phone while the sermon goes on. Here's the thought process. Suppose, for instance, you've had a particularly bad series of days during which you broke several commandments. Now, feel free to fill in the details of those days, however you would go about breaking several commandments. But let's just say the circumstances occurred in which you did a series of extremely bad things. Okay? Now suppose that you suddenly felt very convicted for the bad that you had done. And we live in a system in which once you were caught for all of your naughtiness, I, as minister, would say you've been a very, very bad person, and so you don't get to have communion until you do some penance, okay? And I'm going to tell you the penance to do, and then I will decide when the penance is sufficient to allow you back to the Eucharist table. Combine it with an understanding that if you did not receive the sacrament of the Eucharist and you were to die... You would be denied entry into heaven until somewhere in the afterlife you would fulfill the rest of the residue penance you needed in order to come to heaven, no matter how long that would take. Okay? You understand what we're saying here? Now, suppose at the same time someone who had done nothing wrong, they were very, very righteous, and they were unfairly arrested, and they were arrested for doing good, and so they were in prison, sitting there imprisoned because they were doing good things, and the government had decided they should be persecuted. And during that dark time in history, you would say, I need penance, so I'm going to go visit that person in prison as part of my penance. I'm going to do a good thing. I'm going to go sit with this person who's unjustly persecuted and I'm going to offer my presence and kindness to them in prison. And so you're now talking with this prisoner, this good person who is incarcerated, and you tell them that you're in the process of doing penance for the bad things you had done. And that person says, you know what? I will pray for you and I will pray that your penance be shortened. And you would say, well, that's wonderful. You're a very righteous person. You're in prison. You have time to pray. So your prayers now will be transferred to my benefit. So you come back to me and say, here's the deal, minister. I want to come back to the communion table to receive the grace of Christ in its expressed form. Okay. And so this person who's unjustly persecuted is praying for me. Can we transfer some of that righteousness to my account of penance. They're a good person suffering. I'm a bad person, justifiably suffering. But can they transfer that goodness to my account so that my time of penance away from the table could be shortened? My response would be a little consideration that that makes perfect sense. If someone is righteous and they're praying for you and they're suffering needlessly there should be the ability to transfer that bank of unused penance that that prisoner's prayer maybe can be applied to your account where i agree you would want me to record that that penance had happened right so that you can go into any church and say i know you've heard my reputation 
But my pastor has given me a writ that says, my penance is full and I may commune with you in your church as well. And I'd write that contract and say that the holiness of the righteous guy has been applied to your condition so that you are now restored to fully receive the body and blood of Christ. That would mean that I had indulged your request. Years go by, and let's say you get into a little financial trouble, and you end up that you're in debt to a person who is also not a good person, but the debt is legitimate and you have no idea how to pay it off because you have nothing left as collateral. Except you do have this piece of paper that I signed that a righteous person has prayed for you and covered the penance of your sin, and so you offer it up as payment for that debt. And the lender says, oh my goodness, I need penance too, so I will write off some of your debt for this transfer of the writ of righteousness. I will indulge that writ as my forgiveness, believing it has eternal value to be applied to the lender's sins. Now, I was the one who gave the writ to you, and so I'd probably be a little upset that you monetized the dispensation of grace and didn't cut me in on the action. I should have charged you for that initial transaction. Besides, in my capacity as clergy, I know a bunch of people who have suffered beyond their sins, and perhaps I could broker their righteousness against the sins of others, including loved ones trapped in the pre-heaven torment. Besides, as always, the church could use the money, right? The whole market, this arbitrage of price and penance, hinges on one fundamental market assumption. And the assumption is this, that suffering in this life has some purpose. It has some value. It redeems. If suffering has purpose, then it has to have transferable value. Redemptive suffering, like coupons. The notion that earthly suffering can be redeemed against the cost of eternal atonement. Now, unfolding from this understanding is a significant amount of Christian history. Monks lived pure and cloistered lives, offering the deprivation of their lives as an offering of holiness on behalf of the rest of the church. And so for them to be able to live their lives secluded and austere allowed them to be able to offer prayers on behalf of the rest of the world and the rest of the church so that their righteousness could be transferred to the rest of us poor sots who need the righteousness that they have generated. And the whole formula of these ledgers and banks of grace waiting to be parsed out according to elaborate formula overseen by churchly accountants. What could possibly go wrong? It's embedded often in the way that we talk about Jesus and the cross. That we talk about the substitutionary atonement of the suffering of Christ being applied to our unrighteousness. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. Christ has paid the debt for my unrighteousness, and thereby the grace of Christ, I can be received into the heavenly kingdom. 
And that's about Jesus' righteousness. But you know, there are a lot of people who are also righteous, certainly not perfect like Jesus was perfect, but they're pretty good folk. And they occasionally needlessly suffer. Is there some way to transfer their goodness to others who desperately could use a little righteousness in their lives? We take Christ's substitutionary atonement as a transaction. And then we end up valuing the suffering of others, hoping to make sense of it by asserting that it must be for some greater good. All of us have been there in times of sorrow, in times of loss, in terms of pain. Is there some greater good that will allow us to make sense of what is otherwise completely senseless suffering. Many times as a pastor I have stood in a hospital room looking at someone's loved one racked in pain, sometimes near death, sometimes it's a child, and a parent and another loved one would say, is there anything that I could do? I wish it were me who was suffering and not this one who I love. I am wishing to have my suffering be applied to their pain. Or someone stoically saying, yes, I'm suffering, but clearly God has a plan. Something good will come out of this. And then, my friends, there is Job. There is Job. Everybody has a problem with Job. Chris even said, you know, this is one of the toughies. This is one of the confusing ones. What on earth is going here with the story of Job? The story of Job starts with a conversation between Satan and God. Looking for trouble, Satan has been wandering around, up and down, back and forth, all of creation looking for little inconsistencies that he had used to exploit and undo what God was trying to accomplish. And God asked Satan about Job, a good man, righteous in all of his ways, and Satan points out that God has made it easy for Job. He's a good guy, that's right, but he's rich, he's happy, he's got a magic eight ball, he's got a magic wand, a couple of superhero capes, he's respected in the community. Take that away, says Satan, and Job will curse you in a moment. God says, let the suffering begin. Now, we have a problem with that. It's a little horrifying. I have a problem with that. That God would sometimes allow Satan to jerk Job around and give him running sores and wipe out his livestock and destroy his land and kill his family, all for the sake of God and Satan to have some sort of side bet on humanity. It's troubling. All kinds of questions have been raised about the book throughout the ages. Why would God do that? Who is this Satan guy anyway? And how could Job endure even his wife's mocking and his friends offering bad advice. Now, sure, later versions of the story, and these are actually documented as significantly later versions of the story, there's a tack-on ending in which it is a happy ending, and Job has all of his fortunes restored and then some, and he has much cattle and lots more kids, and it's all wonderful, and that's to try and fix this troubling account by saying, yeah, but it turned out okay, right? But that doesn't explain all of the suffering for his family that did die or the animals that perished or the pain that was inflicted to him. Is there any way that you can make the outcome so good that what has happened becomes trivial? 
I just, in the book of Job, back out one extra level and ask the question, who is the narrator? Who had access to the heavenly assembly and conversations in which the creator of the universe acts as bookie for a fallen angel? Who, who's recording this? We don't know. And I'd suggest that the narrator of this ancient story and it is probably the oldest book in Hebrew Scriptures, puts us in a different mindset. Not about the nature of God, and not about the nature of Satan, and whatever deal they were striking with each other, but the mindset about suffering itself. What story helps us digest meaningless suffering? Job's life is in ruins, torment and health, losing all of his assets, watching his family die. We've known someone who lives with deep and unexplainable suffering. And Job's answer in verse 2.10 that Rebecca read, Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. I remember years ago, when I was on the chaplain staff at the University of Chicago, we had a rabbi that came to talk to the chaplains about pastoral care to Jewish patients. He said the notion of redemptive suffering is a Christian problem, not a Jewish one. He said, you're the ones, meaning Christians, that have to somehow find a need to rescue meaning out of pain. Not us. Don't tell a Jewish patient God has a purpose because they'll look you in the eye and say, and what was the purpose of the Holocaust? What happens, the rabbi explained, is that when you're looking for meaning in suffering, what you're actually doing is distancing yourself from suffering's reality. If it turns into the suffering of someone working out in a gym to get in better shape, the fact that they're stiff and sore and tired elicits no sympathy. And so confronted with deep and serious pain, if our response is, it's going to be great in the end, then we are saying, how can we ignore the fact that you're hurting? How can we look to this greater good over here so that I don't have to look at the mess where your life happens to be. Sometimes, said the rabbi, suffering has no meaning. It has no purpose. It serves no value. Sometimes it is so out of proportion to any good that can come from it, it is just bad. And if that makes you uncomfortable, too bad. Your job as chaplains, he said, is to just be there so that you do not add to someone's suffering their being alone. When I think of Job, I think of the words of the rabbi. Job had friends that sat with him, some giving good advice, some giving absolutely lousy advice, but they don't leave his side. Why? Because they're friends. Do any of them get it right? 
It seems they seem not to, largely as the poetry unfolds of the book, but it is their choosing to be by his side, whether they could make sense of it or not. When I think of Job, I think of Eileen. Eileen was a member of my congregation a couple of churches ago. I think I've told you about Eileen before, but it's long enough ago that you've perhaps forgotten. But even if you remember her, good for you, because I think that her story is well worth telling. I had no access to the heavenly realms where maybe another deal between God and Satan was being brokered out at Eileen's expense, but I did see the human side of that story. Eileen was married for many, many years to an incredibly grumpy, foul-tempered, violent man. He treated her like dirt. I entered her life very late in their marriage, and I know for a fact that if I had been their pastor years before, I would have coached Eileen to divorce this man and get as far away as was humanly possible. But I wasn't there for that part of the story. I was only there towards the end. And Eileen endured his treatment year after year after year, having no access to funds. He denied her the opportunity to even speak to her sister on the phone. They had not spoken for decades. And then, joy of joys, jubilance of jubilance, her jerk husband died. And on the day of visitation, she received the diagnosis of end-stage cancer. She inherited from him literally millions And she would never have the opportunity to enjoy the freedom that that would permit. Only months after he had died, she was in a nursing home, racked with pain, exhausted, completely worn out by ineffective treatments. And in so many words, she would say to me, shall we receive good by the hand of God and not also receive the bad? I remember visiting her one morning shortly before she died. She told me that she had gotten up early that morning and watched the sunrise, and she was so grateful that the window by her bed faced east so that she could see the sunrise. And it was beautiful, she said. She told me that she was planning to get up every morning to see the sunrise from her bed. You know, she said, every Sunrise is different, and I don't know how many I will get to see before I die. I just want to see them all. I thought of the power and grandeur of Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you've made them a little lower than the gods and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put things under your feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic 
is your name in all the earth. Even in the middle of her absolutely senseless and unimaginable suffering, she was able to enjoy creation and God's sovereignty. If there was ever anyone I have known who has exuded an abundance of grace, it was Eileen. If her penance could be transferred for the sins of others, she'd have single-handedly saved a nation. Except this grace wasn't mine to access or anyone else's to tap. It was hers. Hers alone. And in all of this, she did not sin with her lips. Amen. Please stand with me and let us affirm our own faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, 